Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Richard Burridge. I am the Dean of King's College London. And uh, with King's being an Anglican foundation originally, it's supposed to have an ordained priest as its dean. Originally, the dean and principal were one and the same. Uh, the principal had to be ordained. And then in 1908, King's went to a diarchy of having uh, a lay principal and an ordained dean. And we should sort of box and cox like the weathermen or whatever. But unfortunately, uh, the first duty I have tonight is to bring you the apologies of Professor Ed Byrne, our new principal and president, who was supposed to be uh, introducing Lord Sachs tonight. And unfortunately, uh, he was away on a college visit over the weekend and um, uh, at something that's rather disagreed with him and has spent the intervening time uh, rather unwell. And uh, he was still hoping to try to make it tonight, but uh, as far as we can tell, he's, he's not been able to uh, get fr up from his bed of sickness. I'm sure you'll want to join with me in wishing him all the best. I know how sorry he is not to actually be here tonight. The purpose of King's College London, as I said just now, when it was founded in 1829 by King George IV, in response to uh, requests from the then Prime Minister, the Duke of Wellington, and the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Bishop of London, and others, was that there should be a great college of the king in the metropolis, uh, so to ensure that religious and theological questions would always be at the forefront of a university's purpose and activity. Of course, over the many years since, King's is very glad to welcome students and staff of all beliefs and backgrounds throughout our history. Uh, King's was therefore one of the two founding colleges of the University of London. Uh, these days, King's College and the other uh, colleges of the University of London are really universities in their own right. We have some 26,500 students, 6,500 staff, and we turn over something in the order of £2 million a day. And if the principal were here, he would want to tell you about the way in which King's is performing now in the top 20 universities in the world in the various different league tables and so on. And uh, we're here at the Greenwood Theatre. Uh, this used to be a TV studio. It um, is extremely well known to those of you who've watched a certain piece of film that I've had to watch a lot recently. We had a major conference in the summer on Jesus and Brian, what did the Pythons ever do for us? And if you ever saw the very famous Saturday, Friday night, Saturday morning interview with John Cleese and Michael Palin uh, interviewing with uh, Mervyn Stockwood, then Bishop of Southwark, and Malcolm Muggridge, that was filmed on this very stage. It was a BBC studio at that time. Um, when King's merged with the medical schools of Guy's and St. Thomas's in 1998, this became one of our major lecture theatres. And... Uh, Lord Sachs and I have been together on this platform uh, on previous occasions. He, the last time, we were having a, a three-way dialogue uh, between him and Archbishop Desmond Tutu and the Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams. And uh, I was sort of over there, and the three of them were on chairs. And uh, Lord Sachs likes to tell the story that this was the occasion uh, when Desmond Tutu, who is very expressive sat in the middle and began to sing very quietly that God loves everybody. God loves all, all, all. And as he, as he got louder and louder, his arms went wider and wider, 
until he suddenly said, and God loves all, and flung his arms wide and knocked the Archbishop of Canterbury and the chief rabbi off their seats. <laughs> so I'm, I'm hoping there won't be a repeat of that uh, tonight, because it is a special pleasure to welcome Rabbi Lord Sachs. Jonathan Sachs trained for rabbinic ordination at Jews College London in the 1970s when he was also a lecturer in Jewish philosophy in the Talmud. During also that time, he was studying for his PhD here at King's, which he was awarded in 1981. He was principal of Jews College from 84 to 1990, during which time he did the extremely important thing of bringing it into the University of London as a full college within the University of London as the London School of Jewish Studies. He also served as the rabbi of Golders Green Synagogue and Marble Arch Synagogue before becoming the chief rabbi of the United Hebrew Congregations of the Commonwealth in 1991. It was a post he held with distinction until relinquishing it in September of last year, 2013. And throughout all of that time, he's maintained a very close relationship with King's and with the wider field of theology and religious studies. So it's terrific that the head of the department, who I've been teaching right up until this moment, has arrived just in time for hearing me mention theology and religious studies. Uh, Rowan Williams is lecturing on Dostoevsky on the Strand until 7 o'clock, and if he manages to appear by some kind of Star Trek transporter, we'll get him here if we can. But um, Lord Sachs has been a visiting professor in the Department of Theology and Religious Studies since 1999, and I've had the privilege of sitting there in his classes over the time, discussing the meaning of the Bible, discussing the implications of Torah for law and ethics in our society today. And we were delighted to confer upon him the highest award of the college when he became a fellow as long ago as 1993. Uh, when he stepped down from being chief rabbi at the end of last year, we were glad to welcome him onto our staff as a professor of law, ethics, and the Bible, and topics which he explored in his inaugural lecture in March 2014, and I know a number of you were there for that uh, occasion. When we were talking about the topic for tonight's lecture, uh, we came up with the title, Confronting Violence in the Name of God. And, of course, it's deliberately ambiguous. The world is plagued with places and people who think that they can commit violence in the name of God. And if we want to confront such violence, we have to confront it in the name of God. And so, as you will have seen in the information on the website, in the Middle East, in ISIS, in Iraq, the persecution of Christians and Yazidis in Mosul, the ongoing situation in the Holy Land, in Israel and Gaza, continue all three, the face of all three people of the book and so on. So a very timely topic about how do we confront violence in the name of God. And therefore it's right also that we make a special point of welcoming our friends and colleagues from New York University, NYU, because Professor Sachs, as well as being Professor of Law, Ethics, and the Bible at King's, is the Global Distinguished Professor of Judaic Thought at NYU. And he teaches classes for King's here in London. He teaches classes also for NYU. And I'm delighted to welcome Professor Gary Slapper, who's Global Professor at NYU and the author of many major books on law and academic departments and a legal consultant who is also the director of NYU London, who will be doing the vote of thanks at the end. But, ladies and gentlemen, enough of me. You've come to hear uh, 
Lord Sachs, on this topic, this really important topic of confronting violence in the name of God, would you please welcome Rabbi Lord Sachs. Thank you, Richard. Uh, Professor Barrage, Professor Slava, beloved friends, thank you, Richard, for uh, reminding me of that wonderfully um, physical encounter with Desmond Tutu. And uh, I can't really top that except uh, the, the occasion when I was in a synagogue in northeast London delivering a lecture. And, you know, I was delivering my lecture in my normal style, and I lectured for an hour. And at the end, when we were having coffee, the audience said, you had us on the edge of our seats. And I said, you mean the lecture, was it that interesting? They said, no, no, we weren't listening to the lecture. We were taking bets as to when you'd fall off. <laughs> but I hope bets are off tonight, please. There's no falling off and there's no Desmond Tutu, but it's still a pleasure and an honor to be here. Uh, let me first uh, thank both Kings and New York University who are jointly hosting this lecture to congratulate the new principal of Kings, Edward Byrne, wishing him a speedy recovery, saying what an, an enormous honor it is to welcome him to this country and to this institution after his extraordinarily distinguished career as uh, head of Monash University in Australia. Uh, to say what a privilege it is to be working with the Dean, Professor Richard Burridge, uh, a friend of many years. My thanks to you, to the theology department, to Claire Downing and the King's team, without whom tonight couldn't have happened. It's been such an enormous honor and pleasure also to get to know and to work with uh, Professor Gary Slapper and his wonderful team of NYU here in London. And uh, it's just wonderful also to have this special guest uh, Janet Fern Alperstein, who is here just, I think, just for this week from, from New York, Depu um, Deputy Director of Global Development at NYU. And it's a special delight to have my incredible students. Are you here, guys? From King's? Anyone here from King's? Oh, the guys from King's? Hi there. <laughs> and, and from NYU. Have we got the guys there? How did you find it tonight? You know, my, my, glo my GPS sent me completely, completely the wrong direction, so you've got a better sense of direction than I have. Anyway, thank you so much. Thank you for uh, the wonderful privilege of teaching at King's and NYU. And a special mention and thank you to um, Sir Michael and Lady Morvan Heller, who are here this evening, who together with Lord Calm's co-sponsor, my chair at King's, and a Special thank you in absentia, well, at a distance, to Ingeborg and Ira Rennert, who sponsor my chair at NYU. Very, very special people. I have to say that lecturing in uh, London here and lecturing as we do in New York um, does create this extraordinary problem of these two nations divided by common language, and it takes a bit of time to get used to the fact that not every word means the same in English English as in American English. And uh, one of the words that doesn't mean the same is the word momentarily, which uh, in American English means soon, but in English English means briefly. So almost inevitably when I am introduced in America, somebody gets up and says, 
Rabbi Sachs will speak momentarily. <laughs> and I reply, no rabbi ever speaks momentarily. <laughs> but there is one ambiguity. Uh, incidentally, when I was a philosophy student at uh, Cambridge, I overheard two logicians, uh, modal logicians. One asked the other, tell me, is ambiguous ambiguous? And the other replied, in what sense? <laughs> So there is one ambiguity that I want to clarify before I begin, and that is the ambiguity of the word academic. The word academic, on the one hand, means relating to education, to scholarship, and I hope we'll, we'll, there'll be a little of that, not much, but a little in, in what I have to say this evening. But very often the word academic is taken to mean theoretical, not having application to the real world. I do not intend my words tonight to be academic in that sense. The issue that they relate to is very real and present and dangerous in our world. The issue of violence in the Middle East, in Sub-Saharan Africa, parts of Asia, far, far too many countries where, if not the cause, then at least the dividing line seems to be along religious lines, whether that is between one religion and another, or dividing lines within religion itself, between Sunni and Shia, or different uh, kinds of Christianity or Judaism or what have you. And that is the phenomenon that I don't think many people expected we would be seeing and talking about in the 21st century, violence in the name of God. Why does it happen? What can we do about it? And I believe we can only understand what is happening in today's world if we take a multidisciplinary perspective, which will involve a little touch, not much, of biology, neuroscience, theology, philosophy, history, and sociology. So what I want to ask you to do, and I know it's a big demand, but please bear with me, is to come with me tonight on what has been for me a long intellectual journey to try and understand how we got to where the world is today. It is a journey in seven stages, and I hope you'll stay with me. So let me start with stage one. In stage one, I want to talk about three roots that have arrived at the same fundamental question, which is our dilemma. Let me begin with route one taken by Charles Darwin. Darwin was fascinated by a clear tension within his theory of natural selection. Darwin knew that if he was right on natural selection, that nature has evolved, species have evolved through competition for scarce resources, or as we would say now, on which gets to pass its genes onto the next generation, on Darwin's theory, ruthlessness should win. It should be the hawks that, on average, stand a better chance of handing their genes on to the next generation than the doves. And it should be that, over time, the gene for altruism, if you'd call it something like that, should have gone extinct. Instead, as Darwin notes, altruism is valued in every human society known to humankind. Why is that? How come? that ruthlessness, how come, to put it very simply, that a bundle of self 
ish genes get together to produce selfless people. That is Darwin's arrival at this point. There is another way of arriving at this point from the opposite direction, the point at which I arrived at it. Because after all, what it, where I began was by studying moral philosophy. And there was one question that really haunted me. For two and a half thousand years, people have asked, what makes us moral? And they have offered many kinds of answers. Plato thought what made us moral was knowledge. Aristotle thought it was habit. Repeated action produces virtue. Kant thought it had to do with reason. If we wanted to do something, we should act only for the thing we could prescribe for everyone. David Hume, Adam Smith, and the Scottish Enlightenment felt that it had to do with emotion, with sympathy, empathy, and the moral sense. Jeremy Bentham, of another place that we don't talk about in this sacred company, thought it had to do with calculation of consequences, the greatest good for the greatest number. But there was one question that was never asked in all my years as an undergraduate, that is, that if it's so straightforward to be moral, how come that so many people at so many times have a tendency to lie, rob, cheat, exploit, humiliate, and kill? That was the question nobody ever asked. If knowledge, rationality, emotion, all these things lead us to be moral, how come we are so often not moral? And that bothered me indeed for many years. It led me away from moral philosophy. How come? And then finally, we arrive at the same question in terms of theology, where we can put it very, very simply and bluntly. This is the question I have been asking for the past several many years. Why is it that people hate in the name of the God of love? kill in the name of the God of life, wage war in the name of the God of peace, and practice cruelty in the name of the God of compassion. These things bother me. So we arrive at the same point from three different directions, biology, philosophy, and theology. There's a story told about a Jewish mystic who is wondering whether it was better to be born or not born goes away for a year and meditates. And at the end of his year of meditation, he looks to heaven and says, thanks God, life is good. And then he pauses and he says, but tell me God, if life is so good, how come it's so bad? And that is essentially the question. How come if it is so easy and right and religious or philosophical to be good, that we are so often so bad? Or Darwin asking the opposite question, how come when we have this disposition to be hawkish and ruthless, how come we also have that capacity <laughs> for altruism? The same question essentially arrived at from three different starting points. That is stage one. Stage two is the answer to the question. And the answer turns out to be surprisingly straightforward, and yet we often forget it. It was already given by Darwin himself in his book, The Descent of Man. In the language of today, it wasn't Darwin's language, but in the language of today, the explanation is this. We pass on our genes 
to the next generation as individuals. But we only survive as groups. Now, there's a debate raging at the moment between E.O. Wilson of Harvard and Richard Dawkins of Oxford as to whether evolution works through group selection or not, but that's a debate for biologists. However, it is simple that these two mechanisms, handing on our genes as individuals but surviving as groups, actually explain why it is that we have two sets of emotional responses basically hardwired into our brain. They are there as a result of evolutionary pressure. On the one hand, we have all sorts of instincts that we can call altruistic. We are willing to share with others. We act for the benefit of all, and so on. And all those altruistic instincts, as Darwin saw, were necessary for the survival of any group. Any group is held together by altruism. On the other hand, we have another set of reactions, generally called the fight-or-flight reactions, which are all survival instincts in relation to a member of another group. When we meet somebody who is not of our group, especially when we meet a group who are not from our group, all of those instincts, those fear, those, the, 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 that flush of what Daniel Goldman calls the amygdala hijack, those powerful emotions of fear are activated. So, we have these two different sets of emotional reactions. One towards members of our group, the other towards members of other groups. And those are a result of our evolutionary heritage. They're part of bi biology. In answer to the question, are we angels or are we demons? The answer is we are both but we are angels to the people like us, and we are demons to the people not like us, and that is part of our nature. That has been the reason for the failure over history of universalisms of all kinds, whether they take the form of empires or religions or intellectual systems. All universalisms fail to recognize that humanity is, this side of history, inescapably divided into groups. And the essence of any division of humanity into groups is that groups unite and groups divide. And they do so in the same moment. Every group unites many individuals, many eyes, into a collective we. But that group is defined by being the people who are not them, the people who are not members of the other group. There is no such thing as forming a group that doesn't unite within and divide between. The unification and the division go hand in hand. And that tendency to form groups, for all the good and the altruism it produces, and for all the bad and the fear and the hostility and the aggression, that get, these are to do with our groupishness. And that is part of biology. It is also um, a matter of culture as well. When we move from biological groupings to larger cultural identities, and culture decided, decides which groups we belong to and which groups we don't belong to, and that then perpetuates the biological tension. This failure to understand the significance, 
the rewards and the dangers of the human tendency to form groups and simultaneously unite and divide is the critical weakness in all universalist systems, whether they be intellectual or religious. It is true that if we were all Kantians, we'd all get along. Or if we were all Humeans, we'd get along. Or if we were all Benthamites, it'd be fine. And if we were all Christians, or all Muslims, or all Jews, we'd be, no, no, Christians and Muslims, yes. If we're all Jews, we'll have <laughs> terrible wrath. But the truth is, universalisms never work. They're like universal languages, like Esperanto. How many people do you know who speak Esperanto? The great thing about universal languages is nobody speaks them. And it is we have failed over the centuries and the millennia to understand this fundamental groupishness with all the great good it does and the, all the great harm it does, the things that unite us also and simultaneously divide us. That is why we are both good and bad, and that answers the theological question, the philosophical question, and the Darwinian question. That's stage two. Stage three, the question is this. When, where, and why does religion enter this picture? And for that, we have to go back to the Darwinian model and some tremendous work that was done in this field from the late 1970s pretty much to today. It's really exciting work. And, the, and we have to deal here with three types of human groups. The first and the most elemental is kin, is immediate ties of family. As you know, it was a famous thing, J.B.S. Haldane was asked, would you dive into a river to save your brother? To which he replied, no. But on the other hand, I'd dive in to save two brothers, four nephews, or eight cousins. That is the mathematics of kin selection. We share half of our genes with our siblings, a quarter with our nephews, etc., etc. And that is... Um, the primary form of human bonding and altruism that we feel for kin, it's called kin selection. It's been analyzed to a great deal of mathematical precision, and it's based on genetic similarity. Our first form of altruism is formed by that genetic similarity that happens among kin. That's stage one, and that's biological. Stage two where all the activity has gone on from Robert Axelrod in the late 70s to Martin Novak in the 1989 to his latest work on super cooperators. And the question is, how do people, indeed how do the higher primates or dolphins, social animals, cooperate at a level that's larger than kin, larger than genetic relatedness? And this is where the fun stuff has happened with games theory, computer simulations, and something called the iterated prisoner's dilemma. What this tells you is this, that um, uh, there's a rule that says, if I act nicely to you and you act nicely to me, then we both benefit from the cooperation. If I am a so-and-so to you, and you are a so-and-so to me, we both suffer. But what will stop me preemptively being nasty to you before you get the chance to be nasty to me? 
what actually emerges as the best strategy for surviving among um, strangers, among other people whose reactions you can't guess. That is why games theory was invented, to create a system for working this out. As a result of massive computer simulations in the late 70s, the best program that won was called Tit for Tat. You know what Tit for Tat is? It's called, I'm nice to you, and then whatever you do to me, I do to you next. Um, and that is the best strategy that wins. It's called, nicely, reciprocal altruism. But it's actually tit for tat, okay? Uh, in 1989, a Polish mathematician now at Harvard called Martin Novak invented a program that beats tit for tat, and it is called generous tit for tat, which says as follows. I'll be nice to you, then I'll do the same thing to you as you did to me, but every few goes, I'll forget the last nasty thing you did to me. Forgetting is the nearest a computer gets to forgiving. Okay? So this is generous tit for tat. And you can work this out that if strangers relate many, many times, they encounter one another many, many times, eventually, however nasty they are to one another, they work out that being nasty to you means you'll be nasty to me, so I'll suffer in the long run. And eventually, if you do this lots of times, that's what iterated means, you do this lots and lots of times, eventually you learn to cooperate. And that is how we establish what is called trust. Trust is what allows us to behave cooperatively with people to whom we are not related. But it depends on repeated face-to-face -face interaction, which is why there is more trust in villages than in cities. In a village, you can probably leave your front door unlocked. Can you? Or your bicycle unchained. Uh, I wouldn't recommend doing it in a city. Because in a village, you have repeated face-to-face -face interactions, and in cities, you meet as strangers. There is a biologist called Robin Dunbar who has worked out that human beings have very big brains so that we can work out who to trust and who not. And he's actually done a mathematical analysis of how many people we can trust depending on how big our brain is. And the average maximum size of the people we can know well enough to trust turns out to be 150. I don't know what you do with this university with that. Uh, how many students did you say we have, Richard? Okay, so we better break those down into small classes. I was living, giving this lecture to the military academy at Sandhurst, and I was asked by the one of the military chaplains, and I told him this story, and I said, how many military chaplains are there? And he said, 150 exactly. So Robin Dunbar's constant works quite well. So the maximum number of you people you can trust who are not your relatives is 150, which gets you bigger than your immediate family, but it gets you only to the small group. This means that there was a crisis when people stopped being hunter-gatherers and began to move into agriculture, to move into cities with the birth of civilization. There was stage three, the problem of civilization, which is how do you establish relationships of trust among strangers? That is the problem 
of cities. It's the problem of civilization. And that is when organized religion appears on the human scene. Organized religion creates a moral community. It allows us to make that second huge leap from kin to small group, from small group to city. Religions create trust across large populations by creating a shared world of meanings, rituals, a cosmic order which is both out there in the universe and in here in the mind. And that is why when we see the birth of cities, we see the birth of organized religion. I'm not saying that is theology, but it is a functional account of why it is that humans could not do without religion. And uh, you cannot have large cities uh, without religions. Those religions, of course, begat and sustained empires, and empires also clashed. So religions didn't stop the clash of groups, but they did make groups very much bigger indeed. Now, I repeat, it's very important for us to understand at this time that conflict between groups has nothing to do with religion as such. Conflict has to do with our humanity. It is indivisible from our humanity and from our genetic predisposition to form groups. It makes very little difference if the groups we form are religions, nations, states, ethnicities, races, or groups held together by ideologies like communism. It makes no difference. The problem is our groupishness, not our religiosity. The great historian of civilization, Will Durant, once did a calculation and worked out that since civilized, the dawn of civilization, from then until today, there have only been 29 years in the history of the world where a war was not being fought somewhere or other. And the great encyclopedists of war, Charles Phillips and Alan Axelrod, who actually produced the massive Encyclopedia of Wars, where they analyze 1,800 different wars, come to the conclusion that less than 10% of those involved religion at all. So conflict is not created by religion. It is created by groups, and religion simply enlarges the scope of the group. Stage three. Stage four. I want to move to stage four by asking a single question. What is the occupational hazard of monotheism? Well, if you read the prophets of Israel, the occupational hazard of monotheism was polytheism. We're always getting terribly upset at people serving idols and this, that, and the other. So, as far as the prophets are concerned, the great danger to religion, to monotheism, is polytheism. For those who spend more of their time re reading the collected works of Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris, the occupational hazard of monotheism is atheism. However, at a critical moment, a really critical moment, an axial moment, for the birth of Christianity and for the development of what we call rabbinic Judaism, we now know that there was a different challenge altogether. And we know this because of the two great manuscript discoveries of the 1940s. One of them is very famous, 1947, the discovery of the 
text, the scrolls in Qumran, known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Another, not quite as famous, but no less significant, was the discovery two years earlier in 1945 in the Sinai Desert of a group of ancient scrolls called the Nag Hammadi Manuscripts. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls were part of a Jewish sect that flourished to and the second and first century before the birth of Christianity. The Nag Hammadi scripts were what from the second century, would you say, of the Common Era? And they include 13 so-called Gnostic Gospels, uh, that uh, early Gospels that never made it into the New Testament and that have been thought lost forever. Now, what we discover from both the Dead Sea Scrolls and from the Nag Hammadi manuscripts is that the occupational hazard of monotheism in those days was dualism. And this is incredibly important. It's the most important thing I have to say this evening. Dualism is the view that there is not one force operative in the universe, but two. A force of good and a force of evil. And that leads to a whole series of dichotomies between earth and heaven, between the physical and the spiritual, between body and soul, and fundamentally between God and the devil, Satan, the Antichrist, the force of evil. And what dualism does is that having made these huge dichotomies, it then applies them to humanity. And it divides humanity into two, the children of light and the children of darkness, the saved and the damned, the redeemed and the infidel. Dualism comes into Judaism and Christianity in these sectarian ways revealed by these manuscripts from the outside. It comes, on the one hand, from Iran in the form of Manichaeism, and on the other hand, from Greek mystery religions in particular, the phenomenon known as Gnosticism, which comes into Judaism, into the Gospels from Greece. They are not mainstream to Judaism or Christianity at all. But what is significant, incredibly significant, is that at this critical moment when the tectonic plates of humanity were shifting, dualism entered monotheism, both Judaism and Christianity. And that was a strange and dangerous mutation. So the question is, what leads monotheists to become dualists? And this, I believe, is the answer. Dualism arises at a critical moment, a moment of crisis in the history of monotheism, when the cognitive dissonance between the world as it is and the world as it was supposed to be according to the script is just too great. And something breaks. It arises like this. If we believe, as Jews, Christians, and Muslims all believe, in the God of Abraham, a God who is involved in history, 
then there comes a moment when actual history diverges too far from the script of how history was supposed to turn out. Here are a group of believers, and they are saying, we've done everything God wanted of us. We were faithful, we were pious, we followed the rules, and yet we are suffering. The bad guys are ruling, and we, the good guys, are suffering. And that is a major crisis of faith. It is a major crisis even for the heroes of faith. After all, Moses himself says something like this. So does Jeremiah. So does Habakkuk. So does Job. Jesus on the cross expresses this mood when he quotes from Psalm 22 in Aramaic. Keli, keli, lama zavartani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So this crisis is a crisis that is felt by the heroes of faith. But the trouble is not everyone is a Jeremiah or a Jesus. And then for some, time, for some people, some of the time, the suffering has gone on just too long without a glimmer of hope. And that is when monotheism breaks into dualism. Because it becomes easier to believe that there is an active force of evil in the world frustrating the purposes of God than to believe that all this bad that is happening comes from God himself, or the second alternative, which is we cried out to God and he wasn't listening. That becomes too hard to bear, and it is easier to believe that there's an active force of evil in the world that is frustrating God's purposes and afflicting God's people. And that is when dualism is born. And we can see that in those manuscripts in Qumran and Nag Hammadi. Now, they, dualism was, uh, as I say, for much of the time, um, marginal, sectarian. The Nag Hammadi manuscripts and the Dead Sea Scrolls were not mainstream in Christianity or Judaism. But the significance that monotheism could mutate into dualism was immensely significant. Because I've told you the whole problem of the human condition is our tendency to form ourselves into groups, us and them. And dualism turns that division of humanity into groups into something total, categorical, ontological. There's an abyss between us and them. We are the good and they are the bad and there is no monoc there's no shade of gray between them. It's no longer the Montagues and the Capulets. It's no longer the Tertullians and the Corleones. It's not even the British and French or the Canthians and the Benthamites. It's not even Arsenal and Manchester United. This is serious, guys. This is the children of God versus the enemies of God. It doesn't get more serious than that. Stage four, the birth of dualism. Stage five, why is dualism dangerous? I have said, we all form groups. All groups unite and divide. And those divisions create conflict and violence and war. But dualism is different. And I want to explain why. Dualism gives rise to three phenomena that are, in my opinion, the most dangerous 
in all of human history. And they are these. Number one, dualism demonizes your opponents. So, for instance, from the fourth century, from John Chrysostom onward, Jews, to some church fathers and later theologians, become not just the people who aren't Christian, not just the people who didn't recognize the Messiah, not even the people who were involved in his death. They become something else. They become Satan, Antichrist, children of the devil. And the trouble is, when you demonize your opponents, you dehumanize them. And when you dehumanize your opponents, you kill all normal moral sensibilities. Once you have dehumanized your opponents, you no longer feel for them empathy, sympathy, or compassion. Dualism, danger one, demonizes its opponents. Secondly, and here I, forgive me, but I have to speak from the heart. Secondly, dualism defines me and my group as victims, and you and your group as perpetrators. So for instance, starting with the 11th century, around then, whenever something goes wrong in Christian Europe, from around 1096 onward, it becomes the fault of the Jews. It was they who desecrate the host, they who poison wells, they who spread the plague, if a Christian child is missing, the Jews killed him to use his blood to make matzah for Passover. The blood libel was a British invention created, born in Norwich in 1144 and still alive and well today in the Middle East. The morality of victimhood is desperately dangerous because it enlists our highest sympathies. We have compassion for a victim, and that is right, and it should never be otherwise. But once a group defines itself as victims, it has abdicated all responsibility. Why do Christians murder Jews? Well, we have to, because we're the victims. It wasn't us. It was them who poisoned the wells or spread the plague. Um, we are just the victims. And that means you can commit very terrible crimes without responsibility. Third, and this is the real danger, dualism gives rise to the most dangerous phenomenon of them all. And that is the phenomenon of altruistic evil. Altruistic evil is what lures perfectly decent, honorable, and nice, and good young men and women and turns them into terrorists and suicide bombers. Why? Not because they are evil. Exactly the opposite, because they are good. And because they are doing what they are doing to honor their people who have been humiliated or avenge their people who have been wronged by ridding the world of God's enemies, Satan, the infidel, the Antichrist. And again, let me repeat, 
There is nothing essentially religious about this. The Nazis had the same view of their opponents, so did the communists, so did the Hutus in Rwanda about the Tutsis. Germans were taught, German children were taught that Jews were vermin, they were lice, they were cancer. They were responsible for the German defeat in World War I. They were responsible for German hyperinflation in the 1920s, and they were responsible for Soviet communism. Every child in Germany knew the Jews are the cause of our misfortunes. Hence, exterminating them becomes an act of courage and loyalty to your people. That is altruistic evil. And it is the most dangerous phenomenon I have ever encountered in the history of the world. And it is still alive today. Stage six. Where are we today? Where are we today? The answer to that, I think, is this. The last time we in the West faced a situation like the one we do now was in the 17th century. The similarities between now and the 17th century are very real. The 17th century faced a crisis brought about by a revolution in information technology. What was that revolution? Printing. Gutenberg in Germany, Caxton in Britain. So immediately following that revolution in information technology, communication became faster, cheaper, and more global than ever before. Before printing, large swathes of Europe were illiterate. By the beginning of the 17th century, there were more than a million Bibles in circulation in England alone. That is an extraordinary turnabout. And many of those Bibles came from Geneva. They were banned in England, so they were smuggled in from Geneva. It was global communication. Next, the new technology empowered the masses of people as no technology had ever empowered them before. Until then, if you were a member of the public and you wanted to know what the Bible says about this and that, you had to ask a priest. You couldn't find out for yourself. Books were too expensive. There were manuscripts were too expensive, besides which you couldn't understand them because they were written in Latin or Greek. But all of a sudden, within a century, now you can read it for yourself. It's at a cheap price. You can buy the book, and you can read it in the vernacular. It was Tyndale who produced the first translation of the Bible into English in the 16th century and paid for it for his, uh, with his life, burned at the stake in 1536. The result of people having access to knowledge that in the past had been confined only to an elite meant that there was a challenge to all established structures of power that hitherto had been unquestionable and part of the order of nature, such as kings for which Charles I discovered to his cost when he got executed in 1649. When you have a revolution in information technology that allows lots of people to communicate speedily and cheaply, all structures of power are thrown into the balance. Fifth, the primary expression of all this ferment in the 17th century, as now, was religious. It took the form of the Reformation in its Lutheran and Calvinist forms, very different forms. The result was close on a century of religious wars throughout Europe, especially in France between 1562 
1598, and then the Thirty Year War in Central Europe, which cost as many as one-third of the population of Europe between 1618 and 1646. Those wars were brought to an end only in 1648 by the Treaty of Westphalia that marked a new world order based on sovereign nation-states and the balance of power, the order that has lasted from 1648 pretty much to today. All of these transformations that took place in the 17th century have been paralleled by what has happened in the 21st century, the revolution in information technology, globalization of communication, the empowerment of crowds brought together by social media, the overthrowing of established authorities in the whole of the Arab Spring from Algeria, Tunisia, Egypt, Syria, Libya, etc., etc., the shaking of the foundations almost everywhere else in the Middle East, Sub-Saharan, Africa, and parts of Asia, a proliferation of wars, and as Henry Kissinger concludes in his new book entitled World Order, we may be seeing the end of the Westphalian order that has held sway since 1648. And as in the 17th century, Religion has been a key element in all of this. And although the religion is usually described in terms of extremism, the really dangerous thing is that some of it takes the form of dualism and all that it entails. It becomes a war of the faithful against the greater or lesser Satan, against the Crusaders and the Zionists. So let me summarize the argument so far. Stage one, the problem. How is it the good people come to do bad things? Two, the answer. We form groups. And we have altruism towards the members of our group, but aggression towards the members of other groups. Three, stage three, I pointed out the three stages of human evolution, from kin-based systems to small face-to-face communities to cities and civilizations. And it, it was at the third stage that organized religion enters the scene as the solution to the problem of trust between stage, uh, strangers. Stage four, the emergence of dualism. Stage five, the dangers of dualism. And in stage six, we brought the story to today by talking about the similarities between the 17th century and now, which leads me to the last stage, which is what is the solution. Friends, I want to say quite simply this. I would like to suggest that there is one thing we can learn from the 17th century and one thing we mustn't learn from the 17th century. The thing we should learn from the 17th century is this, that what won the wars was weapons, but what won the peace was ideas. They were remarkable ideas that came from an extraordinary group of thinkers. The most famous of them, Milton, Hobbes, Spinoza, John Locke. And those ideas, born in the 17th century, formed the basis of the modern world. There were five basic ideas. Born in the 17th century, number one, the idea of social contract. Number two, the idea of the moral limits of power. Number three, the concept of human rights. Number four, the principle of toleration. And number five, liberty of conscience. Extraordinary ideas produced in a time of crisis by great 
and very impressive thinkers. It is weapons that win wars, but it is ideas that win peace. What shouldn't we learn from the 17th century? We should not conclude that the same ideas that worked then will work now. They won't. And the reason is that what is happening today is almost exactly the opposite of what happened then. What happened in the 17th century is that people became disillusioned with religion. They didn't get disillusioned with God. They didn't get disillusioned with faith. But they got disillusioned with organized religion. And principally with the Catholic Church of the day. And therefore, since the disillusionment was with religion and the hegemony, the control that religion had over various spheres of life, the solution was a long, four-century-long process of secularization. It took four stages. In the 17th century came the secularization of knowledge in the form of Newtonian science, and Cartesian philosophy. In the 18th century came the secularization of power in the American Revolution and the French Revolution and the formal or substantive separation of church and state. In the 19th century, it took the form of the secularization of culture. The secular equivalents of cathedrals became art galleries, concert halls, and museums. They were the secular cathedrals, and Hegel said that modern man, instead of morning worship, reads the newspaper. So the press became a sec All of this culture secularized in the 19th century. And the fourth stage in the 20th century, beginning in the 1960s, was the secularization of morality, the move away from the Judeo-Christian ethic. So, the 17th century answer, and it was a long, slow process with secularization because what people had become disillusioned with was religion. In the 21st century, the movement is in exactly the opposite direction. The real disillusionment today in the Middle East is with secular nationalisms of the form that they took in Egypt, in Syria, in Iraq and elsewhere. What we are seeing throughout the Middle East and parts of Africa is discontent with the entire system of Westphalia that divided the world into nation states with specific boundaries based on geography rather than ethnicity, culture, religion and what have you. The Westphalian system, which worked for Europe but was imposed artificially in the 20th century on much of Africa and Middle East, where it was not an autonomous, endogenous development, it was seen as something imposed from the outside. And what we are seeing elsewhere and globally is another kind of disillusionment with the liberal, individualistic, market-driven cultures of the West, by people who come from traditional cultures. 
The thing about today's Western secular culture is that it offers the maximum of choice and the minimum of meaning. And this is highly consequential. Because in 1897 already, a very great French sociologist called Emile Durkheim argued that in societies where there is what he called anomie, societies where there is no shared moral code, you will find an increase in suicides. This was Durkheim's dazzlingly, dazzlingly accurate intuition. In other words, Durkheim was saying people will sacrifice their lives if the prevailing culture offers no shared universe of meanings. And we now know that people will sacrifice their lives and sometimes other people's lives as well. In short, what happened beginning in the 17th century was a process of secularization. What is happening in the 21st century is a process of de-secularization. That means one thing above all. If religion cannot provide the solution, then religion will certainly be the problem. The Miltons, Hobbes, Spinozas, and Locks of the 21st century, if they emerge, will all be religious thinkers, basing themselves on religious texts. And how will they be able to manage that? And the answer is simple. They will manage it if they remember, demonstrate, teach, and persuade people that dualism is not monotheism. The will to power is not the voice of religion. The will to power is the voice of Nietzsche, the first man to say God is dead. The principle that says it is better to be feared than to be loved, the creed of terrorists everywhere, was the principle first enunciated not by God or by a prophet, but by Machiavelli. The idea that evil in the name of God is holy is not just false, but it is a desecration of the name of God, the God of justice, the God of compassion, and the God of life. I have said a dozen times this evening, it is not religion that causes violence. It is our humanity that causes violence. However, when violence is done in the name of God, we cannot simply say that is not religion. It demands a religious response, and nothing less will do. This is the challenge of our time. Religious extremism demands a religious response that is strong and unequivocal and tells it the way it is, and says that if Abraham is our guide, if Abraham is our father in faith as Jews, as Christians, and as Muslims, if the God of Abraham really is the God, if we are all really in his image, if we are all his children, then we must find a way of seeing a trace of Abraham's God in the face of a stranger, in the face of an enemy. We have to be able to say, that I can see an echo of God in the voice of somebody who is not of my faith, 
I must be able to say that whether, I'm a, whether it's a relationship, an interface between Jews and Christians, Jews and Muslims, Christians and Muslims, Israelis and Palestinians, Sunni and Shia, if we cannot see something godlike in the face and the voice of our enemy, then we are guilty of dualism, not of monotheism. Monotheism is the cure to this mutation that is currently endangering our world. If we do not do this, if we do not stand up forcefully and with courage, Jews, Christians, Muslims, together, then we have a very real danger that we will find ourselves once again in the world of Genesis chapters 5 and 6 of the generation before the flood when the Bible says the earth was filled with violence and God regretted that he ever made man on earth. This time, we cannot rely, as people did in the 17th century, on a secular government keeping the peace between warring factions, between Catholics and Protestants. This time, we have to listen to the voice of God himself, refracted through our sacred texts, as interpreted through the eyes of faith, the eyes of love, the eyes of the generosity of spirit, as refracted through the great minds of the Jewish and Christian and Muslim past that taught us to interpret every verse of the Bible in terms of the God of love, in terms of the three loves, love of God with all our heart, all our might, soul, and all our might, love of our neighbor as ourself, and above all the command, repeated 36 times in the Mosaic books, to love the stranger. If we don't do that, we will find that in destroying our enemies, we will have destroyed ourselves. We will have betrayed our children, dishonored our faith, and desecrated the very name of God. It took 50 years of very dedicated planning and energy and money to take a small extremist interpretation of a religion and spread it until it became the dominant voice of that religion in certain parts of the world. It didn't happen by accident. It will take no less an effort. It will take us 50 years to articulate the ideas and raise a generation of leaders, religious and otherwise, to be able to speak in another language, the real language of God, that will allow us to live together in generosity and forgiveness and love. Religious violence must meet in our time with the strongest possible religious response. And to do this, we must join hands across boundaries of faith and create a true monotheism to defeat the division of the world into the children of light and the children of darkness, or we will find ourselves all in the darkness. Friends, there is no alternative, and the time is now to bring a message of love to answer the most forceful voices of hate. May we have the courage to do so, and I thank you for listening so generously.
A while ago, I had the very distinct uh, privilege and pleasure to attend Lord Sachs' initial class at New York University in London on multi-faith leadership. And it was, as you would expect, uh, a captivating tour de force, like this evening's. It explored and examined the world's history, arcing across the entire development of Homo sapiens sapiens, and the development of theological thought in a most uh, vivid and profoundly erudite way, covering, as this evening we've uh, touched on similar things, uh, great thinkers throughout the development of, of our species. Uh, Lord Sachs coursed with lucidity uh, through the thinking of Plato and Aristotle, St. Augustine, uh, Hobbes, Descartes, Marx, uh, Charles Darwin, Thomas Jefferson, Emil Durkheim, some of whom were mentioned this evening, and Nietzsche, and a great many others in this uh, dramatic, um, uh, just dramatist personae of human thinkers who changed the world. Like all truly great historical figures, as opposed to those who tell us uh, they are great in fields like uh, politics, Lord Sachs is exceptionally uh, modest. He is personally so affable uh, and gentle, but the might um, of his transcendent uh, intellect is manifest. It's clear, I think, that over decades and centuries to come, his thought will be every part as uh, salient and impactful as the thinker's uh, whom he now analyzes in his classes, changing and developing the minds of all of those uh, into whose ambit uh, he comes. He is changing, I think it's true to say, the epistemology of theology, the framework in which theological uh, thought is executed. And we've heard some uh, striking examples of that. By epistemology, I mean the uh, selection of sources, the method of choosing sources and the methodology of uh, developing thought on those sources. And by incorporating, as he has done, uh, the thinking of biology and uh, mathematics, of game theory, psychology, uh, the theory of reciprocal altruism, the sociology of uh, Emil Durkheim and others, Lord Sachs is changing the epistemology of theology and few uh, people across human history uh, have done that. As a monumentally influential chief rabbi for over 20 years, a distinguished scholar of Cambridge and Oxford, of King's College London and New York University, and being immensely influential in the public domain, in print uh, media, in uh, broadcast media, and now online, Lord Sachs is a major philosopher of our times. So we sit here uh, this evening in the august forum of philosophy and the development of ideas, which is King's College London, founded in 1829. And we've listened to uh, a talk hosted in partnership with another august institution, New York University, which was founded two years later in 1831, uh, equally to promote the development of, uh, of humankind and thinking. 
the scholarship of these hallowed portals of learning has always been uh, immense and the tradition of scholarship which these institutions engender uh, has, I think you will agree with me, been uh, greatly reconfirmed in this evening's uh, coruscating talk. It's been said that the object um, of a true scholar is to make profound things clear, whereas the object of a philosopher is to make clear things profound. <coughs> In a quite uh, unique, I think, and engaging way, captivating a way, uh, Lord uh, Professor Rabbi Sachs manages to alternate effortlessly between those two uh, dictates uh, as circumstances and thinking require. <coughs> One central defining and core function of our great university institutions is to promote critical um, and reflective thought. This evening's lecture, which will be up on uh, Lord Sachs' um, website within the week, uh, this evening's lecture has been, um, I think you will agree, a quite remarkable um, stimulus in the context of the development of ideas. And so, uh, on your behalves and on behalves of all the people that I hope you will discuss these stimulating ideas uh, with, I thank uh, most um, heartily the speech um, and, and the effort um, of our esteemed rabbi, our erudite professor, and our noble lord, Lord Sachs, a man of our times and a man of future times. <laughs>